Well, if you have a Bible with you tonight, I would like you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4 and verses 1 through 11. Matthew chapter 4 and verses 1 and 11. Just hold your place there and we will come back to this as we move through this message tonight. This is the second of four messages, um, the series I've titled Messages to the Conscience. Last week we looked at moments of truth. This week we are looking at faith versus feelings. And these messages are specifically designed, these four messages that I will share with you over the next couple of months, to prick your conscience. To prick your conscience in a special way. Because the conscience is such an important part of who we are as Christians. Some of you may be familiar, very familiar, some of you, with the track the gospel track that was used by Campus Crusade for Christ, now Crew, but developed by Bill Bright back in the 1960s called the Four Spiritual Laws. And if you've ever used the Four Spiritual Laws or read through the Four Spiritual Laws, you will know that at the end, after someone prays to receive Christ, they have certain tips for next steps in your Christian life, next steps in your Christian walk. And one of them a famous illustration that they used for many years, I don't know if they still use it or not, was the train illustration, which was called Fact, Faith, and Feeling. The engine of the train was facts, representing the facts of the absolute truth of the Word of God. The second car was the coal car, or the middle car, and it was our faith. Our faith is to be in the facts of the absolute truth of the Word of God. And then the caboose of the train was our feelings. And our feelings are to be based on our faith in the absolute truth of the Word of God. And we are never to let the caboose lead the train. We are never let to let the caboose lead our Christian life. Our feelings are never to be separated from our faith in the facts of the um, Word of God, the power of the Word of God. And so tonight we are, I'm going to share with you about faith versus our feelings. Our first point tonight is an opening clarification. Let me say a few things up front so that you don't misunderstand what I'm about to share with you. As I have shared the last three Sunday mornings, and I'm hoping that it's been clear to you that our emotions our feelings were created by God. Our emotions are good things. They were created by God. It's who we are. We are, at our core, emotional beings. Our emotions are part of our human makeup, and they were created to be good, enjoyable, and healthy. The Christian life is intended to produce positive, righteous emotions, joy, contentment, passion, hunger, etc., etc. Our walk with God involves our emotions. And I, as I have been sharing with you, God wants our emotions to be Christ-exalting and filled with the Holy Spirit. He wants us to enjoy the exuberance and expression of our emotions as Christians. But our emotions must be driven by the Word of God. And that's what I really shared with you last Sunday morning. 
a week ago Sunday morning when we talked about desire and discipline. That our disciplined study of the Word of God is to drive our desire, our passion, our hunger and thirst for God. And if you remember, a week ago Sunday morning, I showed that video clip by Jen Wilkin from the Gospel Coalition in which she says, yes, and she is speaking specifically to women, but it certainly applies to all of us, that yes, God wants us to meet with him in his word in an emotional way, but he wants those emotions to be driven by our careful study of the word of God. So it is our careful study of the word of God that drives these beautiful, wonderful expressions of emotion in our lives. But here's what I want to focus on tonight. Our emotions were dramatically affected by the sinful fall of man. I want to look at the negative side of our emotions because I believe that is very important and something that we must constantly address. That which God means for good, Satan means for evil. Emotions, our emotions are one of the most powerful influences in our lives. They are. Our emotions play a huge role in our lives every day. Here's the big idea of this message. Here is the main thrust of this message tonight. If we are not careful, our emotions can cloud reality and they can be more powerful than our desire to live for God and obey God. If our emotions are not driven by the Word of God, if they are not filled with the Holy Spirit, our emotions can cloud reality and they can be more powerful than our desire to live for God and obey God. Well, our second point tonight is the temptation of Christ. That is Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. What I want to do is I want to go through this well-known passage of Scripture and then come back and share with how this applies to each and every one of us in our real lives day in and day out. Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 gives us the perfect strategy for combating false emotions. This is a classic passage of Scripture. We must trust the Word of God and obey the Word of God no matter how we feel. Now here's a statement that I'm going to make and then I'm going to repeat it at the end of the message. If your feelings are contrary to the Word of God, no matter how powerful they may be, they are always wrong. If your feelings are contrary to the Word of God, no matter how powerful they may be, they are always wrong. God the Father allowed Jesus to be led into the desert so that he might demonstrate that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And in so doing, Jesus gives us the perfect example of how to resist temptation. Fine to read human books on how to resist temptation, but if you want the ultimate instruction on how to resist temptation in your life, it is found in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. In verses 1 and 2, it says, Then Jesus was led up 
by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So Jesus is led by the Spirit, and notice in your Bibles the capital S with Spirit. That is a reference to the Holy Spirit. So in being led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, Jesus shows every one of us how to defend ourselves against the schemes and temptations of the devil. Jesus was out in the desert alone for a long time. He was hungry and tired and weak. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Fascinating sidebar. Don't want to get off on a rabbit trail here. But Jesus, in his humanness, actually fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. If you want some interesting study, it, it, is, it is possible for a human being, for the human body, to endure at least 40 days without food. I'm not suggesting you try that. I am just saying to you that it is possible. And Jesus, at this point, was hungry. I mean, very hungry in his humanness and tired and weak. William Barclay in his commentary says this, nowhere in Palestine could Jesus have been more isolated or in less comfort. So this was a severe temptation. The first temptation, the first of three, the first temptation was an attempt to get Jesus to doubt the providential care of God the Father. Jesus, the Father really doesn't care about you in your hunger in your fatigue, in your uh, weakness. And in verses 3 and 4, we read this. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Feed yourself. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus came to do the will of the Father, and obeying him was more important than satisfying his physical desire. Jesus came to do the will of the Father, and obeying him was more important than obeying his physical desire, even his physical hunger. Jesus declared that we are better off to obey and depend on God, waiting for his provision, than to grab satisfaction for ourselves. The second temptation was an attempt to get Jesus to put his heavenly Father's love and power to the test. Satan was trying to get Jesus to put the Father to the test. In verses 5 through 7, it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Let the angels catch you. That will be amazing. Let's see. Let's see if the Father 
will actually do what he has said in his word. Satan, in essence, is saying this, that by this spectacular act, Jesus could convincingly prove to everyone that he is the Messiah. Come on, Jesus, jump from the pinnacle of the temple. Let's see if the angels will catch you. But Jesus knew this. Please listen to this tonight. To test God is to doubt God. To test God is to doubt God. I can't tell you how many times over the years people have said to me, but what about Gideon and the fleece? What about Gideon and the fleece? Didn't he test God and God responded to him? That's another sermon in itself, but let me say this tonight. Gideon and the fleece. Was God accommodating Gideon in the weakness of his life at that particular point where he was at? It is not a model for discerning the will of God. Okay? I just want to say that. Gideon in the fleece was God accommodating Gideon's weakness at that particular point in his life. It is not a model for how to discern the will of God. To test God is to doubt God. Satan wanted to entice Jesus to separate himself from the Father's plan and will and do his own thing. Jesus, just do this and let's see what the Father will do. Let's see if the Father is faithful. But folks, I say to you tonight, our need is not to prove God's faithfulness. Our need is to prove our own faithfulness. Our need is not to prove God's faithfulness. Our great need is to prove our own faithfulness. Well, in the third temptation, Satan goes for the jugular. He goes right to the central issue for him. Look at verses 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You know what Satan wants? He wants Jesus to worship him. Now, I want you to imagine, in this supernatural moment, the devil takes him, on a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Somehow spread out before Jesus was all the glory of the universe. And he says, bow down and worship me, Jesus, and it will be yours. Now, I want you to understand something tonight. Jesus would inherit all the kingdoms of the world, but the path to that inheritance was the path of perfect obedience that would result in his death on a cross. Satan is saying, Jesus, you can bypass all of that. I will give you the kingdoms with all of their splendor. Just bow down and worship me. Do you know what Satan was saying? Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. No mocking, no suffering, no people spitting on you, no crucifix 
fiction. You can bypass all of it, Jesus. Just bow down and worship me and I'll give it all to you. But Jesus said that we are to worship God and serve him only. Jesus knew that the path of the Father, though it was the hard road of obedience and suffering, that path would eventually bring him true honor and glory and salvation for all who would come to him by faith. Let me say that again. Jesus knew that the path of the Father, though it was the hard road of obedience and suffering, that path would eventually bring him true honor and glory and salvation for all who would place their faith in him. There are three crucial words that Jesus repeats three times in these three temptations. It is written. Easy way to remember it. Three words repeated three times. Now, if you go through the passage, they're actually repeated fourth time, but the other time in verse 6, it is used by Satan in a false way to distort the word of God. But in verse 4, verse 7, and verse 10, Jesus begins by repeating the same three words three times. It is written. So, in verse 11, he, it can say, and we can read, then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus had succeeded. He had resisted the devil because he appealed to the authority and absolute truth of the word of God. Well, let's, let me try to make this real in our lives. I'm going to use a number of scriptures tonight. They're not going to be on the screen because there are just too many of them to try to include in the PowerPoint notes. So you can jot them down if you want. But we're going to look at this from a couple of different angles. How this proves itself out in your own life every single day. Your feelings, this is our third point, your feelings and the promises of God. You may not always feel the presence of Christ. You may wake up tomorrow morning and God may feel a million miles away from you. But that's not the truth. Because the Bible says in Hebrews 13:5, Jesus says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 20, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Doesn't matter whether or not you feel the presence of Christ, he is always with you. You may not always feel like God loves you. You may go through a period in your life where you just wonder if God really loves you. You've gone through some hard circumstances, some hard times, and you wonder, does God really love me? When you feel like God doesn't love you, that is a false feelings because the Bible says he absolutely loves you. In Psalm 103 and verse 11, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Paul says in Romans 8.39, Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5, 5, Paul says, God has poured out his love into our hearts 
by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, John says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. You may not feel like God loves you, but the Bible says he does. And you appeal to the absolute truth of the word of God. Here's a big one that I have found in counseling. You may not always feel like you're forgiven. You may be, go through periods of shame or guilt or regret that you are really struggling with in your life. But the Bible says no matter how you feel, you are forgiven. Psalm 103 and verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. I think you get the point tonight. No matter how we feel, go to the word of God. No matter how you feel, what does the Bible say that what is the absolute truth of God's word in relation to your feelings? So, we could go on and on down the list. You may not feel like God hears your prayers. You may not feel like God cares about your suffering and pain. You may not feel like God can use you for his kingdom work. But that is not what the Bible says. If, if you allow your feelings to be your guide, you will rob yourself of the truth of God's great and precious promises. You will. Cling to those promises in God's word no matter how you feel. Our fourth point is your feelings and obedience. Let's look at this from another direction. We are to obey God even if our feelings appear to be contrary. You may not always feel like the gospel is effective. You may say, why, why should I even share the gospel with this person? They're not going to listen to it. It's not going to make any difference. You are wrong. No matter how you feel about that, you are wrong. In Romans 1.16, it says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it, it the gospel, it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus says, before he ascends to the Father, but you will receive the power, excuse me, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. You will. That's what he says to his disciples before he leaves. You will. The Holy Spirit will come on you and you will be my witnesses. <clears throat> Let's get down to the nitty gritty tonight. Let's get down to something very sensitive very real and this is something that every person every pastor has experienced in counseling if you are a counselor here tonight if you are a friend who has counseled others if you haven't experienced this it is almost assured that you will many Christians have gotten themselves into serious trouble with one little sentence 
but you don't understand. I'm in love. I can't tell you how many times I have been told that over the years. Pastor Tim, you don't understand. I'm in love. Now, they're not talking about biblical love. Biblical love is a choice to show affection within the boundaries of God's word. Biblical love is a choice to show affection within the boundaries of God's word. They are speaking of the erotic, self-satisfying love that the world likes to talk about and to sing about. Here's how it happens. And maybe you've actually experienced this from someone. The Bible says that it's wrong for a man and a woman to have sexual relations before they are married. But you don't understand. I'm in love. The Bible says that it's wrong for a husband or a wife to have any sexual relations outside of their marriage bond. But you don't understand. I'm in love, folks. And obviously, I would never give you specific examples. But I have sat in a number of counseling sessions with a married man, married woman, who are in the midst of having an affair and have told me this. Pastor Tim, you don't understand. I'm in love with her. I'm in love with him. The Bible says that a Christian is never to marry a non-Christian. But you don't understand. We're in love. The Bible says that a man is never to have sexual affection for another man. And a woman is never to have sexual affection for another woman. But you don't understand. I'm in love. And with that one sentence, oh, folks, with that one sentence, many of God's children have bowed down to the altar of their feelings. You know, sometimes we tend to say in sermons and Sunday school lessons, oh, don't bow down to the altar of this culture or don't bow down to the altar of money and fame. But I don't think that's where most Christians are struggling. I think the greatest altar to which many Christians are bowing the knee is the altar of their own feelings, even when those feelings are contrary to the word of God. You may not feel like obeying the clear commands of Scripture. And let's be honest tonight. Sometimes we don't feel like obeying what we know is right. But we do anyway. Let's be honest tonight. You may not feel like loving your spouse. You may not feel like obeying your parents. You may not feel like reading the Bible or praying. You may not feel like giving in, or excuse me, you may feel, you may feel like giving in to lustful or angry thoughts. And we can be honest tonight with each other. Sometimes lustful thoughts and angry thoughts are like a tidal wave. 
They are so strong in our lives. And we are at that time of whether or not we are going to give in to our feelings or obey the word of God. Very much like I talked about last Sunday night with moments of truth. Our feelings, if not guided by the truth of God's word, can be so strong in a sinful way. You may feel like being rude and inconsiderate to someone who's mistreated you. Oh, that feeling of letting them have it, of getting revenge, of getting back at them can be so strong in our lives. Let me repeat what I shared at the beginning. If your feelings are contrary to the word of God, no matter how powerful they may be, they are always wrong. If your feelings are contrary to the word of God, no matter how powerful they may be, they are always wrong. Faith in the word of God must always overrule our feelings. Remember the train illustration. The engine is fact. The facts of the absolute truth of the word of God. The coal car, the second car, is our faith. Our faith in the facts of the absolute truth of God's word. And the caboose is our feelings. Our feelings must be based on or flow from, overflow from our faith in the facts of the absolute truth of God's word. The caboose must never lead the train. The caboose must never lead your life separated from the word of God. May God always help us in our times of temptation to remember the three words repeated three times in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. It is written, it is written, it is written. Let's pray together tonight. Father, help us when our feelings are not driven by your word, when they are not spirit-filled and Christ-exalting, they can be very sinful and very powerful. Oh, Father, I pray for each and every one of us. Help us to place our faith in the absolute truth of your word and to let our feelings be driven by that. Oh, may the word of God always be the foundation for all of our feelings. And then let those feelings be filled with joy and celebration and praise. God, protect us from ourselves. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.